It was 1966, and the 25-year-old mega pop star John Lennon of the Beatles was interviewed by English journalist Maureen Cleave. She visited his posh suburban mansion. In fact, she visited the homes of all of the Beatles, and she found their houses to be filled with what she called expensive children's toys. She was surprised to find Ferraris and Rolls Royces in all of their garages, but she realized John Lennon to be especially dissatisfied with the trappings of his life. He did not appear to like what he had become. And it was in this interview, it was in this interview when John Lennon made maybe his most famous remark. It was a remark that could possibly be seen as a trigger to the Beatles' eventual breakup and most surely to their decision to stop touring. You've probably heard this before. Here's what he said. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're, here it is, we're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary, and it was them twisting it that ruins it for me. Now, when this quote was published in England, it barely made a tremor in the news. But four months later, a condensed version of this quote taken out of context, was published in an American magazine, and the fallout in America has since become legendary. There were public burnings of Beatles records. Radio stations refused to play their music. Pastors warned their churches to never again listen to the Beatles. And they were on tour in America at that time, and it proved to be their last. It was an absolute media mess. So their manager organized a press conference in Chicago as an opportunity for Lennon to explain his comment in hopes of salvaging their tour, salvaging their latest album, which was called Revolver, and their single from that album was Eleanor Rigby, and possibly keeping the Beatles safe on their tour. They'd endured quite a few threats along the way. I want to show you a clip of this press conference. Here's what Lennon said when he was asked about his comment. Turn your attention to the screen. If it had said we're more, uh, television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it. <laughs> you know, but as I just happened to be talking to a friend, I used the word Beatles as a remote thing, not as what I think, as Beatles as though those other Beatles like other people see us. I just said they are having more, in, more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. But I said it in that way. Which is the wrong way, yeah, well, yeah. Well, some teenagers have said, uh, have repeated your statements that the Beatles, I like the Beatles more than Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? Well, originally I was, I was pointed out that fact in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down, I was just saying it as a fact. Well, it was a fact. John's reason for his statement that he made to Maureen Cleave was this, that kids in England at the time, had just lost interest in Jesus. He didn't mean to imply that the Beatles were better than Jesus, just that they were more popular. In other words, John Lennon said that Jesus had a PR problem. 
Now, for those of us who've anchored our lives in Jesus, we probably disagree with that. We don't find Jesus having a public relations problem. In fact, we may even have some difficulty understanding why people don't follow Jesus. But the implication of such a statement that anything, that anything is more popular than Jesus cuts to a reality that we don't want to discuss. And it's this, that if Jesus has a problem keeping people's attention, then what is he really good for? What is he really good for? Believe it or not, Jesus addressed this. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18 or maybe on your version app. We're going to be there and around the Gospel of John a little bit. What we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on the trial of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now here's, here's some context. Jesus was brought by the Jewish leaders to the Roman governor in charge of keeping the peace. We know this governor by name. His name is Pilate. We know that. The Jewish leaders had already decided that Jesus had to die, even though they never gave a sufficient reason for wanting Jesus dead. Rather, they just hoped that Pilate would validate their decision and execute Jesus. So Pilate interrogated Jesus. Now here, let's read this. This is the interrogation from John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him for yourselves, judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Verse 32, look at this narrative input. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say that of your own accord or did others say that to you about me? Pilate answered, am, am, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now in this interrogation, we, we learn one integral fact about Jesus, and it's this, that he is king. And he admits this by admitting that he has a kingdom. But by doing so, he also highlights this very real 
tension. It's the tension to which John Lennon alluded in 1966. That if Jesus is king, which he admits to being, and if every believer in the world adequately accepts him as king at the most, or at the very least just adopts his teachings, then the world should be better. So Jesus, it seemed to John Lennon, seemed to Pilate, and I think it seems even to us that Jesus does have a pretty serious PR problem. Because if Jesus is king, then what is he really good for? Because I think we think the world should be in a better shape than it is. I mean, with all of our advances and all of our progress, with Jesus on our side, the evil in the world should slowly fade, right? I mean, and, and look, we have every right to have this expectation. Let me show you why. Let's go to Europe 200 years ago, six or seven generations ago. The human engine received a jolt of progress for the first time in centuries, maybe for the first time ever. Humans saw new advances in science and economics. Democratic governments were formed or at least passed some critical tests. Educational opportunities became more prevalent. All of these advances created a groundswell of progress and optimism. Humanity, it seemed to turn a corner from centuries of difficulty and despair and darkness. And it did turn a corner right into the 20th century. The century when humanity came to grips with the idea that human progress has one critical limit. It can't stop evil. Because the 20th century, after a century of advances, the 20th century was the century that saw global wars. Those advances in technology, they were used to create weapons of mass destruction. Weapons that annihilated entire cities. Human exploitation and human trafficking, it didn't stop. In fact, in some ways it became even more prevalent. And then humanity turned another corner into the 21st century, into modern day. And those problems, they all followed. We could not stop a global pandemic with all of its cultural and its health consequences. We see every day global unrest. In fact, 28% of Americans report symptoms of anxiety, which is three times that number before the pandemic. We are watching governments allowing horrible things to be done to children. It's 2023 and catastrophic diseases have yet to be cured. The case could be made not just that evil hasn't diminished, but that it's more powerful than ever. In spite of the creativity and ingenuity humanity has unleashed to stop it, and it seems in spite of Jesus being king. So yeah, that's a question we want to ask. What is Jesus good for? I want to answer that question. In our text, John chapter 18 provides the answer. But before we get there, we have a couple of stops 
to make on the way. You have two clues as to the answer of that question. So that's what we're going to do first. Let's talk about the first, the first clue here. It's important to know, let's back, go back to our text in John 18. It's important to know that the Jewish leaders could not legally execute anyone. They needed Rome's permission. And this inability was actually a fulfillment of how Jesus earlier said he would die. Let's again look at Jesus' interaction with Pilate. John chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 31. Look at what it says. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and you judge him by your own law. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, you know this, only the Roman government could execute people. And when the Roman government executed people, they did so by crucifixion. And of course, Jesus knew this, and he actually uses this to his advantage because Jesus knew that his own enemies, or really those who hated him, or even those who were indifferent to him, those people would be the very ones to crucify him. And even if they did not do the deed themselves, they were absolutely responsible. And he told them, he told them this would happen. But by, when he did this, he used a different sort of phrase for his death. Let's listen to his words 10 chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, from John chapter 8. Jesus is in the middle of a great feast. He's talking to the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, the people who don't like him. Look what he said. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing by my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch it? Jesus, in this statement, used language fit for a king, that he would be lifted up. That's what you do to kings. Four chapters later, in John chapter 12, we discover exactly what Jesus meant, thanks to John. Listen to this, John 12, beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, and I, and here's that phrase again, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now John, as the narrator, explains finally what this phrase means. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, Jesus' audiences from both of those chapters heard him prophesy his exaltation as king. Because what do you do for a king? You lift them up. Maybe not physically, but you lift them up. You elevate them. You exalt him. But Jesus here was using a play on words because this is also what you do when you crucify someone. You lift them up on wooden posts or, as Paul said in the letter to the Galatians, on a tree. You lift them up above the crowd. Jesus' words had more than a surface meaning. He knew, he knew that his enemies would prove him to be king, but would do so at the very moment of his crucifixion. So the first clue as to what Jesus is really good for, we're going to call this his 
elevation. Jesus' elevation. Now, let's do the second clue on our way to answer this question. The second clue is found in John chapter 18, verse 36. Let's go back to our text in John chapter 18. The back and forth between Jesus and Pilate, it continues. Pilate asks Jesus whether or not he's king. Here's Jesus' response. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now, we've already said this. Jesus' only admission to being king in this gospel is found here in an indirect statement. He never referred to his title, but he referred to his responsibility, to his kingdom. And what we find out about Jesus' kingdom is that it is not of this world. This gospel, the gospel of John, does not, not once, refer to the world in a positive way. John saw the world, or in this case, this world, as all of creation in rebellion against the Creator. So Jesus, on trial, saying that his kingdom is not from this world, is his way of saying that his kingdom is not in rebellion to God. In fact, his kingdom is in sync with God. And as king, he's doing exactly as God has planned. That he, as king, would willingly give himself to die. And this is the second clue to our answer. And we're going to call it his surrender. His surrender. So two clues here. Jesus's elevation, his exaltation, and Jesus's surrender. These two clues point us to the answer as to what Jesus is good for. And we find the answer to that question in John chapter 18, verse 37. Let's read this again. Then Pilate said to Jesus, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what is Jesus good for? It's right here in this verse, and here it is. To bear witness to the truth. That's what he's good for. And I can tell that you're not very impressed by this. So let's take a look at Jesus' final statement here with some surgical precision. Jesus' statement here is often used in discussions about truth. His statement offers great clarity in a world of relativism. And his statement on truth, it's necessary. It declares truth as absolute. Truth is not subjective. His kingdom is built on truth. But to understand truth, we have to understand the opposite of truth, and that's deceit. And the difference between the two is bound in 
location. Let's look again in John chapter 18, verse 36. And this time we're going to read from the New American Standard Bible. It's a little more literal translation. You're going to see why we're doing this in a moment. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now notice that first Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. But at the end of the verse, at the end of his statement, Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this realm. Two different words, two different words here. Even if our English translations make them the same, Jesus used two different words. He purposefully made the distinction when it would have been just as easy to repeat himself. Why did he do that? Well, he did this to show exactly the difference between a kingdom of deceit and a kingdom of truth. This world, it only builds kingdoms of deceit. That's all it does. That's all it's good for. It builds kingdoms of division. It builds kingdoms of inequality, of injustice. It builds kingdoms of manipulation. It builds kingdoms of supercharged emotions. It builds its kingdoms on the myth of human progress. Those are kingdoms of deceit. They are the kingdoms of this world. But a kingdom not from this realm is a kingdom of truth. It's a kingdom of compassion. It's a kingdom of unity. It's a kingdom of justice. It's a kingdom of equality. It's a kingdom that gives value to humanity, not for its capacity to produce, but for the exact opposite, because we can't produce what we need. It's a kingdom of supernatural origins with supernatural operations. It's a kingdom that touches earth in the clearest of ways, because these ways are not of this realm. They're not of this world. It's the kind of kingdom that moves you to forgive when you would rather not. It's a kingdom that moves you to love when you would just rather ignore. It's a kingdom that breaks your heart when someone else's heart is broken. And it's a kingdom that gives you hope, and we need some hope, when circumstances would say otherwise. The scope, the entirety of Jesus' life, from his birth to his teachings to his death to his resurrection, all bear witness to these truths, to this truth. And that is what he's good for. I want to invite our worship team back to the stage and our elder couples, I would invite you to join us at the front of the stage or at the back of the worship center. While we're putting the pieces in place, I want to read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 5. Let me tell you what's going on here. 
King David is being advised by the Lord to continue a campaign against the Philistines. His previous attack, very aggressive. David was an instrument of God's justice and mercy in these holy wars, and he was successful. But the second attack, a little different. Even though David had great success in a frontal attack, God gives David some different instructions. And what he says is, David, I want you to sneak around the battlefield, and I want you to camp behind the Philistines. The Lord did not advise David to attack from the front again, but what he did was he advised David and his army to put themselves in danger because where he told them to camp was now between the Philistines and their base camps. This was not a safe place to be. And after he advised David to do this, this is what he said. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 24. He told David, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees. Rouse yourself. And then the Lord, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Can you imagine? Can you imagine such a sound? That the tops of the trees are the floor for the Lord's feet as he marches ahead of his people to fight a battle for them, he knew they could not win, even though they thought they could. Can you imagine? Oh, look, there's something, there's something special about the top of a tree. Because it was on the top of a tree where Jesus died for you to fight a battle you couldn't win either. All of your hurt, all of your pain, all of your struggles, your sin, your disillusionment, your loneliness, they are all part of the human condition that you cannot overcome on your own. You know what Jesus is good for? He's good for you. And amen.